morning, church. Today I'm going to talk about making room for forgiveness in our relationships. God said in Proverbs 17, 9, that love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. Meaningful relationships give our lives significance. However, when those relationships come apart, whether whether by intent or inattention, what stands in the way of us bringing them back together is that awkwardness. We fear that we'll botch We'll watch things, you know, trying to reconnect. Uh, we fear that we'll make our efforts intended, our efforts to reach our intended recipients uncomfortable by starting those difficult conversations to resolve things. Yet these concerns are almost always misplaced. Wow. We can create space to address and resolve these concerns by building the margins of grace in our relationships. And how do we build those margins? We learn to forgive. By forgiving ourselves and others, we create enough space to be vulnerable with other people. We build the courage that it takes to be afraid of getting hurt, to not be afraid of getting hurt, and to have real relationships. In that space, we can accept that relationships are messy because none of us are perfect. And in that space, we can begin to work on cleaning up that mess. Are you willing to be powerful enough to forgive in your relationships? Your relationships are possibly limited by your lack of courage to let things go. I encourage you to let go and make room for God's grace. Be careful not to let bitterness become comfortable to you. Don't allow your past hurts to become the bricks that weigh down your current relationships. Let me tell you what that means. When I worked in sales, the more experienced and successful salesmen would coach me on recovering from uh, lost sale attempts. They would say, don't let that ruin your day, youngster. They call me youngster. <laughs> they referred to this coping skill as not carrying bricks. That would be basically what they're saying is, you see, when a builder is constructing a wall, he doesn't unload the whole stack of bricks at once. Right. That'd be much too heavy and too dangerous. He only carries as many bricks as he can safely transport in each trip to the work site. In the analogy, each negative experience we have with a person becomes a brick. That actually reminded me of a past hurtful work experience that I recently had to let go of. Carrying too many bricks at once can ruin your day and also set up negative patterns in your life. You get it? When was the last time you carried a brick into your relationship? A previous bad experience should not add weight to the potential success of this new experience. Take a good look at the person in front of you through God's eyes. And ask yourself if they deserve the burden of having to carry that weight with you. The unspoken truth is that most of us are traumatized. But only a few of us deal with our hurts enough to resolve that trauma. I believe if it were up to Satan... He would delight in seeing all of us infected by our hurts and the grudges that we carry around with us like those bricks. We would carry them into our jobs, into our homes, into our small groups, and even into this sanctuary. But Jesus has invited all of us who want to be his disciples to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. Although his disciple Judas betrayed him, 
Jesus forgave. You may have noticed that it's typically our own trespasses, the bad things that we do, the sins that we commit, that we ask God to forgive. It is for the deeds that we do that he forgives us. We all sin daily, and God is so in love with us that he forgets those sins. It is God's grace that makes the difference in forgiveness and makes forgiveness possible for us. And he charges each of us with the responsibility of modeling that forgiveness as a behavior. Be brave enough to ask for forgiveness. Understand that hurt people hurt people. It's up to each of us to end that cycle in our own lives. Lay it all on the cross, and he will help you resolve that hurt. God will forgive you and unburden those who are heavy laden. It all sounds easy, doesn't it? But we're human, and humans keep score. We forgive people for what they do and not for who they are. We rely on worldly feedback to reinforce our egos and define who we are. We do all this without giving serious thought to whose we are. We do not belong to one another. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. Take a moment to think about what that really means. The test of Christianity is not just in loving Jesus. It's in forgiving Judas. That's good, man. Howdy. My margin topic is making room for grace. So really the first thing you need to start with is what grace is not. Grace is not something that you earn by your good works. You, you can't earn it can't do all the right stuff and end up with it. Grace really in its purest form is given by God freely, right? He doesn't make us pay for it. That's already taken care of on the cross with Jesus. But it's given by God freely to empower us to carry out his will in our lives, right? To empower us to carry out his will. And I think of a uh, New Testament um, example, terrific biblical example, Paul the Apostle. He lived uh, just after the time of Jesus, while Jesus was there, but he was making ministry after Jesus had already ascended into heaven. And he would go from town to town, and unfortunately, while he was trying to preach the gospel and plant new churches and encourage the churches in existence, the same religious leaders that hated Jesus and pushed him towards the cross, would send men ahead of Paul. And they'd go to the towns where Paul was going to preach. And he would be jailed uh, for no reason at all. He got beaten many times ruthlessly, uh, near death, stoned one time, left for death. And in the midst of this, Paul had cried out to Jesus. He said, please take this source of suffering from me. And Jesus' answer is uh, recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. And Jesus told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is perfected in your weakness. Think about that. 
in your weakness and the things that you have no ability at, God is able to pour out grace on your life to strengthen you in ways that by the world standards would be completely impossible. So what this makes me think of is making room for grace is actually making room for Jesus, right? Have you had a time in your life where you needed some grace? I know I have. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I recall a time uh, when grace had a very, very significant impact in my life as an elementary principal. So I'm in my office, minding my own business, taking care of some exciting paperwork, and bam, these two parents burst into my office like a hurricane, and they are livid. I mean mad. You know the kind of angry where your face is fire engine red? You got that little thing going on your temple there? I really, I thought the dad was going to come over my desk after me. I was frightened. I panicked a little bit. And the strangest thing, in the midst of this, all of a sudden a thought pops into my head about this dog trainer that I had studied. He said, if you can't train your dog to quit barking, train him to sit down. For some reason, dogs won't go berserk if they're sitting down. So I said to the parents, sit, please. And they did. Somehow, they, they actually did. So in this brief moment, my pounding heart started to slow down a little bit. And I actually cried out to Jesus at this time. I said, I need your wisdom. If you don't give it to me, I got nothing. There is nothing in my skill set to deal with two angry parents inches away from me. I felt like I was inches away from death, actually. But So in that moment, the Lord provided grace for the moment. I was able to calm down. I was able to listen, genuinely listen, intently listen to what their concerns were. And we were able to formulate an appropriate plan of action to address their needs. And that's God. That's God's grace. God's grace empowered me to calm down and provide that positive resolution as an elementary principle. So, folks, when Jesus sounds the hurricane warning in our lives, what can we do? We can make room for grace, right? And we can make room for Jesus and allow him into that situation, allow him to speak into our lives. And really, it's not even for me or you. It's for the other person we end up ministering to. So this is a scripture I want to bless you with. It's uh, Acts 20 and verse 32. It says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And that sounds just like making room for grace and making room for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Today I'm going to talk about making room for divine interruptions. Making room for divine interruptions. A divine interruption is a moment set up by God somewhere in your day where God has the opportunity to minister through you to another person. 
Have you ever been driving down the road and you happen to see somebody pulled over to the side? Maybe they have a flat tire or they're out of gas and this thought pops into your mind that says, I should pull over and help them. Divine inter interruption. Or maybe you're running your errands. You're at the store and you're just looking at items on a shelf and then your eyes land on a stranger, somebody that you don't even know. But there's just something about them that your heart is drawn to them and you feel like maybe I should go over and talk with them and pray for them. Divine interruption. It's an opportunity to let Christ demonstrate his love and his power through you. There was a time where I was too busy for divine interruptions. You see, I had a to-do list and I did not budge. I went from item one to item two to item three. Somebody had to talk to me. I said, put it on my schedule. I'll talk to you later. And I was walking around feeling so anxious. I was constantly stressed out. I was underslept. I was overworked. And the weight of responsibility felt really heavy in that season. Has anybody else ever, ever felt that way? Yeah. Well, in the middle of my stress, God led me to Matthew 6, And this is what it says. So above all, constantly seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these less important things will be given to you abundantly. What God calls less important is anything that isn't related to his kingdom or his righteousness. Things like provision or obtaining success. But these are the things that we chase after, stress over, and obsess over at the expense of getting to know God in a deeper way. As I read this passage over and over, what I began to realize was that I didn't have a calendar problem. I had a heart priority problem. Was I seeking God above all else? What's interesting is that my time with God was technically the first thing on my to-do list. But it was like this, quiet time, check, move on to the rest of my day. I wasn't really spending quality time with him. Even though he was first on my list, he was a lower priority in my heart. The things that took priority in my heart were accomplishing the tasks that I had on my list and achieving all of the goals that I had for myself. After seeing this in myself, I realized God doesn't want to just bless our plans. He wants to become our plan. He wants to have first place in every area of our lives. He wants us to know him as our protector, our provider, our one source for everything that we need. So I had to relearn what it meant to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness above all else. Instead of just spending time with him and then moving on with the rest of my day, I began to talk with him throughout my day. I would ask him, Lord, what's on your heart right now? Lord, how do you want me to respond to this situation? I had to learn how to focus on God no matter what was happening in the rest of my day. But the thing is, full focus on the Father requires us to let go of everything else. It requires us to let go of our expectations for the day. 
to let go of our to-do list, to let go of our agendas, to let go of our timelines, to let go of our goals, and to let go of everything else that we think we have total control of. And as I slowly began to let go of each of these things in my own life, one by one, painfully releasing, here's what I learned. When we let go of all of these things, we make room for God to move in our lives. When we let go of all of these things and focus on him, we learn that he is our provider, our protector, our one source for everything that we need. When we let go of all of these things, we make room to encounter his love. And when we know how he loves us, everything else becomes less important. Then his priorities become our priorities. His plans become our plans. And we are no longer slaves to our to-do list, to our agendas, to our calendars, but we are free to respond to every divine interruption that pops up along the way. And I want to tell you, when you come to that place, to the end of yourself, but into God's arms, these divine interruptions, they're no longer interruptions. These divine interruptions become moments that we were made for. Thank you. Good morning, church. The title of today's message is Making Room for Fate or that is faith beyond what is necessary. We're going to read chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. In there, we learn about Lazarus. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. He was a friend of Jesus. He had God's favor, and then he died. John 11:4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This story is packed with a lot of emotions. There is sadness, there is fear, there is anger, and there is joy. There is miracle at the end. It defies all laws and timelines and solely hinges on the promise of fate. So if we rewind the story a little bit, we see that Lazarus has fallen gravely ill. His sisters are pleading with Jesus, hurry up, come back to Bethany, we're going to send a messenger, and he's going to reach out to Jesus, and everything is going to be okay. By the time that messenger reaches out Jesus, Lazarus has most likely died, but that comes to no surprise. Jesus has seen the outcome, and he has prayed for it. Let me ask you this. Who here does not want Jesus to pray on their behalf? And here we are. It's the fourth day. Jesus and the disciples are finally in Bethany. Lazarus is indeed dead. He is in a tomb, and that tomb is sealed with a large stone. Customary beliefs back then would tell you that after the third day, there was no chance. No man, no miracle, no God could do anything. Well, Jesus delayed so he can build up the faith. This is a message for those of you here and those of you listening online that are praying for a miracle that are praying for a loved one, that are praying for their own health, for a spouse, for a birth of a child, for financial blessings, whatever that is, what seems as a delay to us, God sees as an opportunity. 
Jesus arrived and got confronted with unbelief almost immediately. If you were here, said Martha, said Mary, they know him. They've seen what he's capable. Of course, the crowds chimed into the same note, if you were here. You helped the lame to walk. You made the blind see. You fed the hungry. Lazarus was your friend, and you did not have time for him. Jesus wept, not because of Lazarus' death, but because of lack of faith that everybody had. Greatly disturbed. Some translations say angered. He said, roll the stone aside. The rolling of the stone is the work of faith that God demands from us. He asks us to have that faith so the blessing and the promise, the answer to our prayers could be delivered to us. It's a barrier behind which hides everything. He could have split it in half. He could have teleported himself to Bethany, but he didn't do it, right? John eleven forty. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Remember, God will make you an example of faith, grace, and blessings. The following two uh, verses for me are personally the most powerful in this chapter. And in there, we see Jesus looking up to the sky, and he's saying in 1141, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Let's pause for a second here. This is a completion of a circle of prayer. The promise has been delivered, and here it is. We see a prayer that's been launched not yesterday, not four days ago, but years ago when Lazarus and Jesus first met, and that was the promise would not be dead. The outcome would not be dead. And I knew that you always hear me, says in 42, but I said this for the benefit of the, of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. This morning, I would like to share with you my statement of faith. It's not as radical as a resurrection, but it is a story that took years to become an overnight success, or at least seemed like that. 15 years to be exact. August 22, 2007, I came to the United States for the very first time. I was a 19-year-old teenager all by myself. So that's a word for those of you that are right out of high school and looking forward to what's next. I did it because of the love and the support of my parents and God's blessing. The last part took a little bit more than 10 years to figure out. But one thing I do know and remember is that every time I faced that tomb with a stone, God delivered on his promise as long as I worked my faith. It wasn't on my time. It was not easy. But I hope that that serves as a, as a testimony for you of those of that are facing a tomb right now. John eleven forty two. When he had said this, he called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. If Lazarus was here this morning preaching, he would tell you this. Death is not the end. Jesus is the beginning and the end. And what I'm going to add to this is God is never late. He's just not in a rush. Well, good morning. I'll be speaking to you today about making room for exchange. I was my mom's only child for 11 years. And my mom always says that I was spoiled. Well, maybe I was a little bit. I'm sure my husband can agree on some level. <laughs> I like things my way. I want what I want, and I want it how I want it. We all do, right? 
I've learned how to share and how to compromise. But somewhere in the back of my mind, like guiding all of my thoughts is that famous word of every person on the planet, mine. As a child, my toys were mine. As a teen, my room and everything in it was mine. And as a wife and mom, my food is mine. <laughs> Having the mind mentality hasn't got me very far, though. I've had more setbacks than I can count. And seeking God to help me change the mind mentality. The scripture Isaiah 55, 8 is what I focus on. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are beyond anything you could imagine. What if we paused to pray and ask God what he wants for our lives, our dreams, and our families? See, I have the honor of serving on the worship team. Whoop, whoop. And it's really funny because when I first started coming to Anchor Being, the one thing I told God I would not do is serve on the worship team. I had been leading worship for over 20 years, and I had decided that that season of my life was over and done with. And I was super clear about that. God would have it that this past January, during our 21 days of prayer and fasting, Alexis and Crystal was out at the same time. How convenient. And it just so happened that I was available and I had shared my story with someone and suggested, they suggested that I could lead worship. It was at that point I had a choice to make. I had to consider really what would Jesus do? You see, Jesus modeled a life of exchange and surrender many, many times. In Matthew 26 and 39, it says, my father... If it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. In this passage, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knows he has to die on the cross for sins that he has never, ever committed. And although Jesus is all God, in this moment, we get to see him as all man. He is in agony over the physical and emotional pain, the struggle, the suffering, and ultimately the gruesome death he is about to endure. Jesus had a choice to make, and I'm sure he could have decided to live his life in many different ways than dying on a cross. But no, Jesus resolved his way was temporary and God's way is eternal. He was on assignment to exchange his sinless life for a sinful you and I. He understood that assignment very well. And although being asked to serve is not quite dying on a cross, <laughs> because honestly, I really do love leading God's people in worship. It was the death of, what, of the idea of what I thought my life should look like. I had to choose to exchange my ways for God's ways and my thoughts for his thoughts. And then I had to live the life that says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And maybe, just maybe you're like me. You've been coming to church every Sunday and you have decided that it's one service and I'm out. Listen, 
it's okay. Like, no judgment. That was me as well. But can I tell you, it's just a simple yes that can lead you into a life of surrender. For you, that could look like, yes, God, I will serve you. Or it can look like, yes, I will go to next steps or I will serve, the, uh, serve on the dream team or I will join a, a, a small group. Or it could look like, yes, I can give you more of my life for more of yours. Wherever this message finds you right now, I want to encourage you to pause and pray. Lean into God's presence. Exchange your ways for his ways and exchange your thoughts for his. Thank you. All right. Well, this morning I get the privilege and honor to talk about making room for more of God. Say more of God. Yes, the story idea comes from Luke 2, 41 through 59. Just to summarize, Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, uh, take their family relatives to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Uh, this is a week-long Jewish tradition where they celebrate the exodus of Egypt and also the Israelites' freedom from slavery to the Egyptians. To kind of put into perspective how large of a party this was, the city would grow from a population of 20 or 30,000 people to over 150,000 in a matter of one week. So it was a pretty large party to attend. And then when Mary and Joseph left to go home, thinking Jesus was with them, they traveled a whole day before they realized Jesus wasn't with them. Yes. So I want to pause here. I wonder how many times we suppose God is in our life and we're instead we're pursuing our own dreams, our own ambitions, leaving God behind. See, sometimes the plan in our hearts are not God's plans. And sometimes God's plans for us is to just let them go. The story goes on. It takes three days to find him. So for the parents that's ever misplaced a child, you're in good hands. It happens. It's biblical. (laughs) And they lost the Savior of the world. So give yourself a break. What I want you to catch in this story is that it's easier to lose that special presence of God than it is to get it back once we've lost it. Listen, church, the main objective of the enemy is to keep you out of the presence of God. He knows that if he can succeed here, you will not be a threat to his earthly kingdom, right? You will not be able to live out your purpose out of the presence of God. I can imagine how these next three days went for Mary and Joseph when they lost the presence of Jesus. I wonder if fear started creeping when they lost the presence of Jesus. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's depression. You know, maybe it's that passionate marriage conversation of who lost Jesus started creeping when you lost the presence of Jesus. Maybe it's shame, guilt, anger, rage, whatever it may be. See, we can correlate this with our own walk when we lose our presence of God. See, past sin begins to creep back in. Distractions to keep you out of your quiet time. Past habits start to creep back in as well. The whole point is making it more difficult and more challenging to get you back in the presence of God. See, a few weeks ago, I took my seven-year-old daughter, Sailor, uh, to the Children's Museum of Houston, and they have this three-story vertical ropes course. It's a maze. And being a good father that I am, is, you know, it was pretty intimidating for her. I was, you know, gave a little attagirl, told her, come on, let's face our fears. Let's get up there. Uh, and she was a bit nervous to try it. Um, but she started off strong. Uh, Very confident, no fear, no worries. And the higher she continued to climb, the further she could not see me, but I can see her. And as she got higher, the course got a little bit harder. 
and she started making the wrong turns, making the wrong decisions, and she realized she could not see me anymore. In a matter of seconds, she lost her way. She thought she could do it on her own. See, I could see her the entire time. I could see her struggles. I could see her fear. And as a father, man, that broke my heart to see that. And I wonder if that's how God feels about us. I wonder when we start making all the wrong decisions, all the wrong turns, and the entire time he's right here next to us, wanting a relationship with us so he can then guide our life. See, it's easier to lose that special presence of God than it is to get it back once we've lost it. Of course, when I noticed her seeking for me, I immediately climbed to where she could find me, and then I guided her out of that maze. And her first response was, I am never doing this again. (laughs) Yep. See, the closer your relationship with God, the more you make room for more of God. This is when God starts to remove your struggles, your anxieties, your fear, and starts giving you direction and wisdom for your life. See, the scripture goes on to say that after searching for God in all the wrong places after three days, do you know where they found him? In his father's house, in his temple. I wonder how many of us are looking for God in all the wrong places. Looking for hope, looking for joy, looking for happiness outside the word and the will of God. And to continue, when Mary and Joseph found Jesus after three days, this is what Jesus said. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that it must be about my father's business? This is coming from a 12-year-old who's been gone for three days. I'd have a better choice of words if that was my child. But see, church, it's, it's, it's more than coming to the house of God. Yes, let's do that. But it's about being about your father's business. It's more than attending. It's activating his will in your life. It's about being connected to the church. It's about being connected to the source. It's about being connected to the vine and then staying there and then living there. Thank you.